Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia, and we're keeping up the comedy theme as we meet a regular from the world's longest-running sitcom, The Last of the Summer Wine. Ashley's been talking to Mike Grady, who played Thora Hurd's character's son-in-law, Barry, one half of Barry and Glenda, the show's younger contingent. Last of the Summer Wine was created in 1973, so it's almost 50 years old this year. Written by Roy Clark, who also created Open All Hours and Keeping Up Appearances, it was, of course, set in the beautiful West Yorkshire countryside. Have a listen to this and see if you can spot Mike's uncanny impression of Peter Salis. Enjoy. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. Well, Mike, it's an absolute delight to talk to you. Uh, now, of course, we're going to talk about uh, Last of the Summer Wine at length later on, but let's go right back to the beginning. Now, your first sort of appearance on television was in, am I right in saying, Doctor in the House? Yeah, yeah, that was my first TV, yeah. But, but, but yes, they were very they were very good to me. I did the very first episode of Doctor in the House. I had two words, oh, God, that was my line. And then chatting to the casting people afterwards, and they said, well, if you like, you know, they would get me in, ring me up and say, do you fancy coming doing a few scenes, you know, and, and uh, I would do it, you know, very happily. Um, I was glad of, of all the work that came my way. Was that London Weekend that did that? Dr. Yeah, House? the old London Weekend building, yeah. yeah. It was one of their first programmes, I think, because they'd only just been launched yeah. around 68, 69, didn't they? Remember, yeah. remember rightly. And, and, yeah. and then you sort of, um, so, you, so you had that, that was sort of a, a, a early sort of baptism of fire, I suppose. And, and then you were, like, probably a year later, you got a role in Carry On Loving. Uh, yeah, I did, bizarrely. Yes, they said, do you want to do a a part where you're kissing a beautiful woman and don't have to remember any dialogue. No-brainer. <laughs> No-brainer. I said, yes. And uh, Valerie Shute and I, well, we, we, we're we still friends. We used to occasionally see Valerie around and uh, uh, we had a we had a lovely time, you know, just uh, just uh, hanging out, watching watching all these people working, really. She was quite... A, she was a stalwart of the carry-ons. She'd done a lot of them. But I was new to all of that. So I just sat there like a fly on the wall and watched these people working. They're all old professionals, all of them. Every one of us had a really good CV. And I used to watch Charles Hawtrey and Kenny Williams rehearsing. And they would rehearse through lunch. When everybody else went off to the lunch place, they would sit there and go through the lines over and over and over again until it was rock solid. And Jerry could come in and start filming and they would know it immediately. It was... They were real hard workers, all of them. Fantastic. I was going to say, yeah. it must have been a, you know, obviously by that point, the carry-ons have been going for a good, what, f- I think it was 1958, the first one. So oh, we've yeah. been going the for first another, ones were, yeah, yeah, another 12 years, around 12 years they've been going by that point. So yeah, carry-on loving wasn't wasn't their best work by any means. Their best work was in the first two or three. Carry-on sergeants are really good film. Yeah, some of the really early ones. Some of the early ones them. are very good, aren't they? Very Car- good, Carry yeah. On Cruising, yeah. I caught, thought was quite good, actually. And Carry On uh, Cabby as well. I may not know well. that one. But Carry yeah. On Cabby they, as well. They, the scripts were better. Um, they, but they settled in. They have an audience. And uh, yeah. they, they were doing them doing them very quickly. Um, a, 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 a lot of care was taken. They were a great cast, working really hard. 
um, th th yeah, it was interesting to just be there and uh, be able to observe it. And I thought, okay, that's how they do it. They just work hard. That's how you do it in this business. You work hard. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> I'm told they were done quite quickly, though, in the sense that they were, they, they did sort of, you know, the, the, the filming was, that, I mean, it's only a few weeks, wasn't it, in each one, I think. Oh, yeah, well. very short. You, you would, you'd be expecting, I mean, all the, the regulars would, would be expected to turn up knowing their lines, be able to walk on the set and just do it, really. I mean, there was a lot of lighting to be done. I mean, we did a big sequence at the end, which was a pie fight in a a restaurant, and somebody threw him a custard pie, and the whole thing turned into a massive, I mean, probably the best custard pie fight I've ever seen. There must have been 20 people throwing things, and it took two or three days to film that sequence. Yeah. And they were, and it's dank by day three. I mean, it was rancid because they'd used real cream. Instead <laughs> of using the stuff we use in Panto, they'd used real cream. So it was all, but it was a, it's an amazing uh, custard pie sequence. Probably the best. What was your, at that particular point, you were doing, you know, bits and bobs and different different things. Obviously, it's great to be able to, to be doing all that. But what was your initial ambition? What did you want to do with the acting side of things? I was glad, I was glad to be, accepted into that world uh, it was as far removed as flying to the moon for me uh, becoming an actor working in the theatre so I wanted to work in the theatre which I did uh, I expected to leave um, drama school go into rep and there were a lot of people around at the time um, oh, oh boy you know oh boy you know get a good little gig in a rep somewhere and do this and there wasn't a lot of ambition around and I I wanted um, some money. I wanted to be have some identity in this business, and I wanted to play good parts in probably in theatre productions. I hadn't seen myself doing TV or, or movies, um, so that was it. Really, I was just doing the next thing, and um, you never know where uh, you're going to go. And some of the things that uh, seem inconsequential will take you. To the next stage and one of the things that happened for me early on was um, I was very popular with commercials people uh, uh, and you'd go into a commercial casting and meet Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, Alan Parker, all those hot shots who were making, they weren't making movies then, they were making commercials and they really liked me, they snapped me up, they thought you know geeky bloke a bit, a bit of a, a bit of a Woody Allen type you know a bit nerdy and um Along comes Pepsi, Pepsi Cola commercial, which I didn't get paid a lot of money for it, but by golly, it made a difference because it gave me an identity and it gave the agent the chance to go. We'd like to put Mike up for this part, and the casting guy go, don't know him, and they say he's the guy in the Pepsi ad, and they go, oh, we like him, we'll we'll see him, and that made that opened doors like you wouldn't believe. Was that in the early, was that in the early seventies? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was born in seventy two, so I'm yeah, just trying to yeah, think. I can't yeah. quite remember the the, the advert, but uh, but I know you. I know what you're saying about the kind of characters that they mm. you know that they they cottoned on to you to you oh, for. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, to come to that in a moment because obviously Citizen Smith was one of those kind of um, sure. ca characters. But in those early days, you were doing lots of different things, and you you know. Um, you starred in both Emmerdale Farm and Coronation Street in the 1970s, at times when those programmes, certainly Coronation Street, was, of course, huge, massive in terms of the, you know, the characters and the actors and the people who were in it. Um, 
Do you remember your recall your experience on on Corey and Emmerdale? We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying to oh, yeah, I'm trying yeah. I'm trying, I'm oh, trying, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Me, yeah. Me, we all artists, man. We go you feel me? We're gonna have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I got lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta lie, don't play with it. Don't play with it. No. Take that shit. Serious. I remember Corey very well. Uh, I only did a couple of episodes. I was working up there on a sitcom, and the producer was uh, about to take over Corey, and he said, um, "Would you mind staying on for a, a, another week while you're up here in Manchester?" Very happy to do that. He said, I've got a couple of eps for you. And I had to um, break into the Rover's Return and give Annie Walker a heart attack. That was my job. Um, uh, it didn't uh, It didn't make a, any difference at all to my kind of career. But in terms of the people I met and to sit around and watch people, those people working, was interesting. The, the, it was a salutary experience. I mean, I thought, I do not ever want to be in... Um, a soap and to have some of the attitudes that were going on at the time people were bored and a bit um, entitled yeah. uh, very welcoming very nice to me and uh, but uh, I thought no, no this is not what I would particularly want to be doing actually it's, um, it's it's I used to love Coronation Street when I was a kid I used to watch it when it was black and white and I still think when I see those clips that pop up on Twitter and I see um, Violet Carson in the shop delivering those lines at such speed, with such alacrity. I think, boy, the, the actors they had in those days were phenomenal. Okay. They were truly wonderful actors. I'll take a packet uh, of, ba- what was it, packet of baking powder or whatever it was at the end, right at the end, I remember that. <laughs> that's it, all um, that, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you, so you basically caused Dor- uh, Doris Speed's character, Annie, to have a... So heart attack. I think I remember. Wasn't she? Didn't you break into a bedroom or something? I remember a scene of her in so, bed yeah. or something like that. If I remember rightly. Yeah, we hid in the toilet until they closed, and then broke into a bedroom upstairs. I think that was how it went. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I know. Um, yeah, yeah. It was. It was. And then we ran out, and we had a long chase with whoever that guy, Peter Adamson, I think his name. Len Fairclough. Len Fairclough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, gave chase, and then there was a confrontation between me and and the other guy I was with, and. Um, and and the Len Fairclough character, and you know whatever who, it was dramatic, very dramatic. What was the sitcom that you were doing up in Granada? Then what was the? It would have been my brother's keeper, which was a, a sitcom about twins, the two twin twins who never who didn't look at all alike. It was good fun. Yeah, I remember yeah. I did a few episodes of that. Yeah, I played yeah. a very nerdy young conservative. <laughs> okay, okay, and then and then just. Just briefly on the staying on the on the on the soaps or drama serials yeah. as they were called then because I remember sure. I'm, I've got an IBA annual and it's it it says in it specifically drama serials it doesn't call them soaps at all I think it was no. Americanism wasn't it calling them soaps but you were in Emmerdale Farm as well what did you do in Emmerdale can you remember being in that not a lot no I was uh, <laughs> no, I don't remember a lot about it, well but it was a, but it was a foray into Yorkshire 
Before you did Last of the Summer Wine? Oh, Yorkshire. Yeah, well, Yorkshire's always, always been a bit of a feature. I mean, I used to, when I was in the theatre, we toured uh, all over the place, including, you know, I played I played the Grand Leeds and, and, and all kinds of places, you know, and uh, I was, I, I, it was a county I knew pretty well. I had a cousin who lived up there who um, had a stable. She was a, She's a horse whisperer. She's now down in Wiltshire. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, she trained horses. She was wonderful. And I used to get, um, when I was working up there regularly, I used to go and visit her and her husband and and help out with the horses, you know, and um, watch her work. It was, it, it was brilliant. Um, I remember a guy coming in one day with his little girl and their pony. The pony was unrideable. Um, it was freaked. And he said, I don't believe in all you. He said, I don't believe in all this. He said like that, you know, uh, horse whispering stuff. He said, but I've been persuaded to come. So I said, well, let's see what happens. Within an hour, the little girl was able to get on the pony and ride it round. He said, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it. And I said, well, how would you normally train a, frick, uh, a, a, a pony that was being cultish? He said, normally <laughs> I would smash it in the face with my fist. Oh. And I thought, OK, this is an interesting aspect but it, yeah it's a fascinating place people used to say summer wine they say well you know it's all fiction i say i used to drive from where i stayed in my cottage up there i used to drive three valleys to every morning very early to uh, the locations and on the way i would see see characters sitting on fences walking along the road i would say we're not really doing a sitcom. We're doing a documentary. <laughs> well, I'm from Yorkshire originally. I, I, yeah. I grew up in the Wake, well Doncaster Wakefield area. So the, oh, yeah. the areas that you're talking about aren't far away from me. And no, no, yeah. no, no. I mean, so yeah. I mean, we'll talk about last summer wine in a minute. But you, you, you're right. There's definitely a, a, a connection. So in 19, oh, was it 80 or 79? You got off of this part in. In a John Sullivan, no, it's before then actually, wasn't it? Nineteen late seventies, seventeen seventy-seven. Yeah, you got offered this part in a in a John Sullivan sitcom before um, uh, Only Fools and Horses um, called Citizen Smith, and I mean we'll talk about some of the people who are in it, but you know the, the people I always re always remember from it. Um, actually, one person I always remember from it is um, is Hilda Braid's character. I don't oh, know, Hilda. As, a, as a kid, she sort of captivated me. It was the way she spoke and everything. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. tell us, tell us a bit about that. The story behind that. How did you, how did you get, how did you get the part? And um, you know, had you worked with any of these people before? Well, I knew Robert uh, because we, we'd been friends for, for a considerable time, and. Um, I simply got a call from my agent one day and said, would you go to the BBC and would you meet this uh, producer about a new sitcom? And, I, and they sent me the script and it was terrific. It was very fun. I thought, boy, this is really, really good writing. Whoever gets this is going to do really well out of it. And then Robert rang and said, I've just been to the BBC and they've offered me this part, uh, the lead role in a new sitcom, Do you, have you heard about it? You should be up for it. And I said, I'm already up for it. And we ended up with Robert, his wife, Cheryl Hall, who I worked with at the Royal Court, and myself. So we, it was like going to work with your mates, you know, because we were, Robert and I were writing stuff anyway together and uh, do, doing all kinds, of, all kinds of performances. He was very big at the time in the West End and all over the place already. Um, he'd done a big series at um, Thames TV, set in the RAF, and so he was—he had a big profile. 
And I think he was uh, very keen that I should take the part. And I was very keen to do it. So we had a ball. We had the best possible time. We had a really, really good time doing that show. And we were the first ones in. We Nobody else had played it. Nobody had seen it. We got the scripts first. We got it all. Fantastic, and, um, fantastic. Wonderful. Tell Just us what, you, what, what you... know what. So what did you understand about it at the beginning? Obviously, you know, um, we know... You know, most people listening to this will probably know something about it, but just tell us a bit about the the concept of what you were supposed to be doing with that. Well, I think a lot uh, later on it emerged that, that people were talking about it being a sort of ha uh, about people who'd who'd been very politically active in the sixties and then sort of clung on to that and not changed. But at the time, we were just looking for gags. Really, we just kept working and working and working, and John was fantastic at. Uh, he always overwrote. It was always a little bit too long, like five minutes. So we all had to edit. So we lost acres of really good stuff. But it was it's always best to edit. And Robert and I had both been working in similar kinds of theatre. So we kind of improved a lot of moments, not not the dialogue. That was all John's. But we would invent things to go around it or situations where we might be able to work uh, different little gags in. Um, and the rest of the cast who, who joined were all of similar types, but we were all basically having a really good time and looking for the biggest laughs we could possibly get out of it. Um, Dennis Main Wilson took over um, for the actual series after the pilot. He was a ferocious, uh, a, a huge name. I mean, Dennis, there's a man you, somebody should do a, do a program about. Dennis uh, was a, a short man uh, vibrant, angry, um, quite, quite, but very powerful and very well connected, had had a great war. Like a lot of those people at the BBC, they'd come out of the services right from the top to the bottom. And he knew everybody. And when we wanted, when John wrote that there was an armoured car driving around Parliament Square, that was impossible to get. You do not get that. You do not get the tanks on the streets of London for anybody. Dennis made a few calls and we got a tank driving around Parliament Square. I mean, it, it was quite something, you know. Boy, and was we were the in um, very good company. Was the opening scene, you know, when he's climbing up the thing, was all that done sort of um, without any health and safety issues? <laughs> oh, health and safety, how are you? You know, give me a break. <laughs> and uh, no, we didn't. We there was stuff he'd never seen. That we were shooting. Um, we had a helicopter. We wanted a, a shot, a very high shot of us pushing a van for a, up a long road from above for the title sequence uh, at the end of one episode. And while the helicopter was there, Robert said, "Wouldn't it be great if I do that thing of punching the air and going power to the people?" And I'm actually holding on to the bottom strut of a helicopter and it takes off and nobody said no <laughs> and there is somewhere probably in the archives a piece of film of Robert reaching up holding onto a helicopter and it taking off and going 20 feet in the air before lowering him down again now you cannot imagine anybody allowing that to happen now but it was it was very funny. I wish they'd used it. It was very funny. <laughs> the opening scene where he does the you know he's on the um, the statue statue and whatever. Yeah. And there's those two little kids 
looking. <laughs> I often wonder where they ended up. It'd be nice to find out if they where they are. They might really. been. They might have been John Sullivan's kids. They may have been. Yeah, it could have been. We, my my kids were in an episode. John's were in an episode. Uh, just you know, in the background sometimes. You know, they were. Yeah, we always got our families in. Tell us a bit about yeah. your a bit about your character as you you know it, it built on that reputation you'd started to get of the kind of character that that people thought you could play really well, didn't it? Well, the character um, I I did a lot of work on it before we started filming because we um, there was an obvious way to go. I mean, I wore glasses, so I mean that kind of came with the set, and I had a history of playing those kind of people. Uh, there used to be a, a thing at the Roundhouse every Sunday, a big rock concert every Sunday. Um, and there were bands that were kind of no longer popular would play. They were packed. And there was a new generation of very young people who would turn up. And uh, I went to a few of these with a friend of mine in another capacity. And I was watching these kids and, I, and they were dressing differently. It was pre-punk, way before punk. But they were, they were wearing quite a, kind of raggedy clothes, torn clothes. And uh, from that, I got the idea of the bus, the bus driver's coat, which I wore, and then the woolly hat, which I wore, and the badges, which I got, the torn trousers, and the uh, sneakers. Um, I dressed it all from from seeing what these people were doing, and uh, I costume people were in incredibly um, helpful. And we dug up all these things in the BBC and, and dressed it that way. Uh, as for the character, John wrote that. I just played the lines. And because uh, it was mostly a, a feed character, you were kind of involved in the scene, but it, you were always aiming for Bob to have the the, the, the tagline at the end of it. You wanted him to get that, that reaction shot. Uh, we were all working towards that, really. So uh, the character was what it was as written. Ashley's chat with Mike Grady continues on Distinct Nostalgia in just a few minutes. If you're a Blue Peter fan, you'll enjoy something special we've got coming soon. Tim Vincent is going in search of Valerie Singleton, and he'll be meeting one or two others along the way. Hi, Peter. It's Tim Vincent. How are you? Oh, hi, Tim. How are you? Nice to hear from you. I'm not too bad. i tell you why I'm ringing up. I'm trying to get hold of Valerie's number, by any chance. What, Singleton? Yes. Hmm. I'm not sure I've got her now. I've got an address somewhere. Well, I'm tempted to ask, why do you want Val's phone number, Tim? I'll only pass it on to you if you divulge why you want it. <laughs> Tim Vincent, as I never breathe. What are you calling me for? What do you want? H Hello, T Tim. Tim. Tim Vincent. Tim Vincent. Oh, God. It's Tim. Just it's about 20 minutes or something. I'm, I'm no, no, that's Tim Vincent from Blue Peter. Listen out for In Search of Valerie Singleton with Tim Vincent very soon on Distinct Nostalgia. Tell us about working with um, the wonderful Hilda Braid then. Hilda Braid was a, a joy. She was just, <laughs> she was from that other school, she and, and Peter Vaughan. We'd had three dads. Yeah. Uh, we had Arthur Morris in the pilot. Uh, and then we had Tony Steedman, who was terrific, who was in the series. And then Tony um, 
didn't uh, continue. I forget why. He had work in America. He went off to do Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in America. So that was great. And then we got the great uh, Peter Vaughan, which was a wonderful thing. Um, and Hilda was there throughout in every episode. And uh, she was a love, just a lovely woman for a star, a lovely presence to have around. Very sweet, very funny, full of stories, full of uh, just just very nice, very nice, very professional turned up, newer lines, all the rest of it. And um, and incredibly popular. We realised early on. We thought it was our series, but we realised pretty early on that 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 Hilda was uh, such a popular creature. People used to stop us in the street uh, for autographs, and they'd ask about as as mum, you know. Well, she got this. So, um, yeah. she, she got this. I mean, she was in EastEnders years later as well, wasn't she? she was yeah. quite popular in EastEnders, but. She got this. Um, she's got a very distinctive voice, hasn't she? And that was the main thing for me. And as a yeah. kid growing up, I just thought, I don't know, she was a real character. There's something about her. And of course, the the connection, the thing that she had with um, with Wolfie, you know, the connection with them two was 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 brilliant, wasn't it? Do you think Citizen Smith would work today? I think it would. Yeah. In fact, I remember Tony Millen, who played Tucker. Uh, uh, we're very good friends, and we we um, sat down one day and thought about Senior Citizen Smith. Because we're all alive. I mean, Peter was alive then too. So he would have been, Hilda sadly not. But um, the four guys, um, uh, George is, is is still with us, uh, and Tony and I and, and Bob. So uh, Tony and I m mapped out a rough script. Uh, John sadly died a few years ago. But we were in every episode, so I know uh, enough about writing Tony's a very good writer. He's done lots of stuff, um, hundreds of episodes of different series. And um, we presented that, but the estate of John Solomon didn't didn't want to be bothered with it. Uh, but I still think the idea would work today, but not in the same way. Obviously, we we're all old men now. I mean, it's certainly one that I remember as a, as a kid. You know, I remember the power to the people and oh, it's the, massive. The, the it theme massive. tune and everything. You know, it was it was great. And oh. do, do you think what what can you see in that it, that John wrote that ended up or or certainly helped him to form um, Only Fools and Horses? Well, what what John did was write stories that he heard down the pub. And uh, one day he told us a story, and I begged him to write it for us. He told us a story about some chandeliers that his, I think it was his dad had been working on. Mm. Well, you know that episode of, of, of Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he told us that story uh, while we were doing Smith, and he, and, and we, he said, you've got to write us that. And he said, oh, I'll get around to it. And then the series finished very abruptly, and, um, and we never heard any more about it until that, that came up. John wrote from life. He wrote, he wrote stories about things he knew about and he didn't write politics, he didn't write any of that, he just wrote, it was slightly satirical politically. Um, but he wrote about people, dodgy people that he knew from South London where he lived and, um, you know, where there was a very strong community of people around there who, who knew stuff, they knew people who knew people, you know, it was all that, you know, and that was what he was very good at writing. Which makes it so real doesn't it in the sense mm. that those characters you everyone recognizes the thing i always find annoying actually in certainly in, dra in drama and in comedy it, well, more so now than ever before in a way is the way sometimes you get some writers and, and some directors whatever who 
you know, there's, there's definitely an agenda and a message. And that always puts me off because I think to myself, this is this feels contrived. Whereas you get people like, uh, I don't know, Mike Lee and the way Mike Lee does things. You, sure. you, you, you actually care about the characters in a rounded way, don't you? So it might be somebody that you automatically you really wouldn't like. But actually, when you, you know, when Mike Lee's treated, treated it in his particular way and got the actors working in a particular way, you come out of it actually caring about that character as well. Do you know what I mean? So there's empathy I'm there, exactly. isn't there? And I think that's what's missing sometimes. And I think that's probably what, well, I think it's definitely what John was very good at, wasn't he? I think so. Uh, John John was in a great tradition of writers. He was, I think, he's probably, as they say now, underrated, but certainly not by us he wasn't. We, we ad, ad, absolutely adored him and we wouldn't change a line uh, uh, of his dialogue unless he, uh, unless he wanted us to, or if it had to be cut. Um, but he he knew what he was writing about. He was writing jokes, and he wasn't afraid of he wasn't afraid of jokes. He wasn't afraid of, afraid of just being funny for, you know, uh, for, for for no particular reason really. Um, now this was this he, went out. Know, he, said, he, said, he said he so he said he was so honest. He would check his watch before he ate and after eight mint. Now that was John <laughs> Sullivan. Uh, he would say, he say, uh, he's he's so stupid. He thinks Hertz Van Rental is a Dutch painter. I thought that, <laughs> you know, I just thought he was. He didn't. He wouldn't. As long as you got a gag, he'd be happy. Yeah. He didn't yeah. care about yeah. the rest of it. You know, absolutely. Well, he was a bloke down the pub. This went out in between 77 and, and 80. So this was a period of time, I'm just thinking about reflecting on the society we were living in at the time. This is a period of time when um, jo uh, James Callan was the Prime Minister. Uh, the Labour Party was uh, having various issues with its, starting to have various issues with its, with its, one of its, one of its extremes, etc. All that kind of thing. How, how certainly how a push in different. couldn't happen now. <laughs> there was a push in different directions, weren't there? You know what I mean? And so, in a way, although, as you say, John, it was about um, sheer, sheer, you know, sheer comedy. It was about making people laugh at the end of the day. He, he, he touched a nerve at the same time, didn't he, in terms of the kind of subject matter, in a way? I think so. Uh, it, was, it was sort of about pretension because uh, the, the character of Wolfie was... Um, very committed politically, but actually what he really wanted was, you know, uh, some money and a pint and a girlfriend and suburbia, you know, and and he, and it was kind of about that, that uh, conflict in that character. I think that was part of it. And, but, but as you, you know, and, you know, we had very few conversations about the politics of it at the time. But, you know, I think we were all pretty sort of left-wing-ish or at least middle-of-the-road left-wing um, then. And we would uh, have kind of agreed with the general thrust of the series. But it wasn't something we took very seriously as a political tract. I wouldn't uh, rely on it for my education. What, what What's interesting, though, uh, we could talk about John all day, but what's interesting about it is that um, Only Fools and Horses also then started, in a way, to reflect the period that it, of when it was around, didn't it? Because you've got this situation whereby um, Del Boy was aspirational, wasn't he? He was wanting to do, yeah. you know, the, 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 the whole thing about Thatcherism and whatever was about supposedly about aspiration and, and, and bling and all the rest of it. And he sort of reflected that a bit, didn't he, throughout the 1980s in that way? Um 
I guess so. John so, was yeah. very good at yeah, just, you know so. getting into that really. So no, that's interesting. So why did Citizen Smith end then? Was it was he just came to natural natural end or was it what, what was the situation? Um, I, I I was never sh- sh- sure. Uh, I think. John was already looking to writing new things, but I think he would have liked another few series of that. Uh, the BBC, uh, I have to say the BBC were never fully behind it. Uh, at sitcom level, they were behind it. At, at the level of the department, they were behind But up on the sixth floor, I think they were a bit snooty about it. Um, Robert had got... Uh, well, he was enormously popular. He was, dem- he was in demand everywhere, and he could see that his career was uh, going in a whole other direction. And there's only so much you can do at that point. And I think he probably said, "Well, I've done this now. We've done three series. We did thirty-six episodes, I think, altogether, something like that." He said, "Well, I've sort of done that now, and I think we kind of fell into that. BBC didn't pay us a lot of money." Um, they didn't tie us down to any contracts. They they weren't fussed one way or the other, really. So we drifted off and it just didn't get picked up. Now, you say, how many episodes did you say of that were done? Do you mention? I think it did about 36 episodes 36. altogether. Now, that 36 episodes sort of uh, pales into <laughs> insignificance when it comes to the the thing that you're probably most remembered for, which, of course, is... Last of Summer Wine, you were in 161 episodes of that. Was that really? Um, And it was, of course, um, many people don't realise this, but it was, of course, the world's longest-running sitcom. It started in 1973 and went on until, what, 2010, I think it was, when it last last series. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's something about Last of Summer Wine. Obviously, it changed over over time. But there was something about it, wasn't it, that obviously kept it going um, for such a long yeah. time. And obviously there's the characters, but there's also the wonderful countryside um, and obviously the fantastic writing from uh, Roy Clark. You didn't enter into it till 1986. It had been going for 13 years by that point. What was your impression of it? Had you watched it before? Never seen it. And... Uh... I got a call uh, saying they've um, they, they're talking about you for this an episode. It was an episode, uh, a long episode. They were introducing a new character, uh, Michael Aldrich's character, and the director rang me, um, and he said uh, we found we didn't live too far apart. So I met him on a pub on the A3 uh, for a chat. It wasn't a regular interview. He just said, "Oh, let's meet up," um, and we chatted about it and he said well I, you know if you've got nothing else to do in a few weeks time I'm doing I'm shooting this thing do you want to do it and I said yeah I'd, I'd, I'd love to it's a job and you know, it'd be great thank you um, I thought no more about it and I read the script it was a really good script uh, I knew Roy Clark's you know uh, work I knew he'd done it done that series for a long time but he'd done a lot of other things um, and I went along and I started filming and uh it was great. I mean, it was a lovely uh, job to have, truly lovely. But I had it had no future. I wasn't booked, and I spoke to a couple of the regular characters, and they said, "Well, we only came in for one or two episodes, and we're here three years later." You know. So I said, "Oh well, maybe there'll be something," and it gradually developed into something. Um, they found the character quite 
useful in some ways to go between various factions within the storylines. Um, and the Glenda Barry thing was became quite a, a feature. And so we stayed with it, really. I mean, it was good fun and it was um, uh, it was unpredictable. We didn't know whether we'd be picked up for the next series or not. But um, it just happened. And then suddenly 20 years had gone by and I'd been doing it on and off for 20 years. I, I never thought of myself as a regular. I thought of myself as an irregular in the series. And, and it was... Uh, that was how it was. I was um, very happy doing it. Because it wasn't mine, I hadn't gone in at the beginning and started work with it at the very top. I wasn't really kind of part of the original setup. So I was very much a visitor and very, very happy to be so. But I would think that <clears throat> people still recognise you, I'm sure, as Barry. Do you get people oh, yeah, calling you well, Barry yeah. in the street, do you? Well, it's a very safe series. You can repeat it and repeat it because it won't offend anybody. They had guest stars coming into odd episodes. And we met Brian Conley, who is a great, great actor. Wonderful. And, and he did one. But the most bizarre person we had was George Chakiris. George Chakiris, way before you were born, I'm sorry to say, was a massive star in Hollywood, in West Side Story, and any film you see with Marilyn Monroe dancing, he's one of the dancers around her. Very handsome, brilliant man. And he was touring England, playing Mr. Rochester, and Alan heard about him, rang him up at the hotel, said, fancy doing a couple of days filming. He'd never heard of Last of the Summer Wine. He came along, did it, God bless him, did it, and left. And we all went, but how weird was that? Um, yeah, it was it was full of surprises. It was just a, a great job to have and great, great people to be with. And I was lucky. I met people. I met heroes. There was Michael Aldridge, who started, who was being introduced into the series as as with the whole family, with Thora, with Glenda, Glenda and Barry. Um, Michael and I hit it off very well. I was a big admirer of his work already. And uh, he was a very inclusive person and very much my kind of actor he would improv stuff before filming so we would sit and do a scene and and I'd say try shall I try this should we try this should we try this and he would be up for it he'd well up for all kinds of stuff so we did and the opening gosh we had a scene in a pub where he was telling me giving me advice about life marriage his life as a great headmaster and we were both incredibly drunk in this scene. And he, at one point I said, just put your hand on my shoulder. And he did, and I just slid slowly out of shot, um, leaving him talking as if I was still there because it didn't matter. And we hadn't told the cameraman. And he said, I wish you'd told me, he said, there was a bit of camera shake on that because I was laughing so much. but. Michael was that kind of person. He was that kind of actor who would give things a go to see if they worked. Very, uh, very modern in that way. Very nice man. Fantastic. Very much missed. Fantastic. Were you? Yeah. I'm trying to remember. So you mentioned that you mentioned Thora and um, obviously um, Thora and her husband, and then you and you know uh, you and Glenda. Did you and Glenda arrive before Thora? 
No, we all arrived together. All arrived together. I always thought it was you two before Thora for, for some bizarre no. reason. Right, okay. Yeah. That's, that's no, interesting. That was the family because it was Glenda was her daughter and I was the son-in-law. So that was the story was our wedding. Yes. That was the opening story. And, of course, it was about the three guys. And so uh, we all arrived together and people said, oh, you're going to work with Thora Heard. I, I knew Thora Heard was. She's a big star. And um, uh, I, I, she was lovely. She was great with me. She had She had no problem with any... Uh, there was no hierarchy in, in her head or in Michael's. And so um, we immediately got on with things, you know, and just did our job and um, would mingle afterwards, sometimes in the hotel where we all stayed uh, or, or, you know, go for walks and things. And sometimes I would, if I was coming back to London, I'd drive Thora back with me, drop her off at her place. And we had, we had lovely chats. She was a, she was lovely company. Yeah, I did a yeah. great interview with her daughter, actually, um, for Distinct Nostalgia, which I've not put out yet. And um, Jeanette, yeah. yeah she no, was quite a, she she was had a big a, star. She had a big career of her own, didn't she? Mm, uh, back absolutely. In, back in the day. So, yeah, so Lost to Some Wine. So, like all BBC sitcoms, um, I presume that the... Obviously, you did a lot outside. Lots of stuff is done on location in Holmfirth and surrounding areas. Uh, but then all the inside stuff is done down in London. Is that right? It was done at TV Centre. It, it was initially. What we would do was uh, we would go up and film for several weeks and then we'd come to London, go into the studio, do all the studio stuff indoors with the studio audience. They would uh, play the filmed inserts so they would get the laughter track and we would do it that way. Um, I dropped out of the series for a while and by the time I came back some years later, they'd filmed everything. And then they would play an edited show to an audience to get the laughter track. They got that right most of the time. They would time it. They would have to guess where the laughs were. But they did it. I remember there was a, a scene where I had to run very fast past Glenda. And as she saw me running away, she realised I had a huge hole in my trousers. In the seat of my pants was torn out. I don't know. I'd come over a fence or something. And her line, well, I hope you can edit all this. Um, her line was, oh, look, my Barry came so fast he burst his trousers. Now, we, I spoke to Sarah about this before. I said, are we going to get away with this line? And she said, I think so. Um, we spoke to our producer and he said, I don't know. I don't see anything wrong with that line. So I said, fine, OK. When we did the scene, the crew died laughing. Died. They stuck their fists in their mouths laughing. When they edited it and they played it to an audience, they had to do it again because the audience laughed at that line because it is foul so much that it, the laughter went through the rest of the scene into the next scene and drowned out all the dialogue. So they had all kinds of trouble with it. Um, I guess the uh, double entendre had just, uh, had just gone over our producer's head. <laughs> uh, innocent soul that, that he was. Alan, God bless him, he's a lovely man. Well, he's a bit of a legend, uh, wasn't he, Alan? A bit of a legend. Alan J.W. Bell uh, uh, um, was was indeed, and he'd taken over the series not long before I got there. And uh, he'd had to um, take on a very popular series with a cast that was well set in its ways and uh, and make it work. And indeed he did. And he, Alan's history in the business was as an editor. That's where he was originally trained. So he knew when to finish a scene and what to edit and what to cut and what to lose. 
and um, how to be economical. So he would often line people up along a gate and just track the camera along face by face, each one saying a line. And if you happen to be the guy on the end, you just hoped you wouldn't forget your line. Otherwise, we'd have to start all over again. But yeah, no, he was a, a master. And you can hear more from Mike Grady in part two of our special interview in the next few days when he'll be reminiscing about Compo, Clegg and Foggy. Yes, of course, Bill Owen, Peter Salis and Brian Wilde. That's to come in the next few days. And don't forget to look up Distinct Nostalgia on Patreon where you can become an official supporter of Distinct Nostalgia and help us to continue creating even more great content. And coming soon with more comedy nostalgia as we trip back to the early 2000s and the masterpiece that was Early Doors. I mean, we've done recently done a 30 tour like, over the last couple of years, 60 dates, standing ovation every night. That's John Henshaw coming soon to Distinct Nostalgia. As long as he doesn't get caught in those roadworks where it's all coned off all the way past McVitie's up to the bank on Bird Hall Lane. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>